Today's scripture is Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Allison. Cool. <laughs> well, good morning, my friends. Um, I'm Jim Ellis, one of the elders here, and the pastor of counseling. And I have to begin with a true confession. I was standing down in front already, notes, and I realized that when I packed my bag this morning, I forgot a book that I wanted to read from this morning out of Pilgrim's Progress. And so I'm like, oh, nuts, man. So I called my wife. She made it here in nine minutes. Bingo! So, man, let me tell you, I'm a blessed man. My sweat is much better. <laughs> oh, my. Well, uh, for those of you who are visiting, uh, we are Redemption Church Peoria, and we are uh, one of ten congregations, Tucson, Flagstaff, and eight in the middle. And we've been working on the book of Ephesians since, I checked today, since January 14th. Pretty impressive. It's been a long, a long run. So let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Father, we're thankful, for, we're thankful to be able to come, to sing, to pray, Lord, to praise. Father, I pray for eyes to see and ears to hear your word. So, Father, that we would be ready to put off the old man, Lord, to put away those things that are hard for us each individually in our own walks to be renewed in, the, in our minds and then to put on the new man so that we might represent you well in the areas and fears of life that you've given us. Bless our time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And one more thing I have to do is set my timer. God, God see, getting this book late was messing me up big time. <laughs> okay, stopwatch. Is that good? Okay. So we're going to turn to Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. And Paul, in the last three chapters of Ephesians, has become very, very practical with his church, emphasizing unity in the body and today, purity, our need as believers to not live as Gentiles, not to live in the sinful life that we came from, but to live as new men created in Jesus. As Sean pointed out last week, Paul is emphasizing the need to speak to the church to truth one another, truthing one another, and he reminds them to speak the truth in love is essential to growing up in every way as Christ is the head. I want to show you a slide. It's going to come up here in a minute. A short church history of Ephesians, I think. If not, I'll work it through. Okay. Um, 
Here it comes. Yes, okay. Just to give us a context historically of what's happening in the church of Ephesus, we know that, and that Paul establishes the church during his second missionary journey around 52 A.D., and he spends about three months, maybe six months there with this new church. Then Paul returns and spends two years during his third missionary journey. The years are 53 to 58, and people think he was there about anywhere from 54 to 56 A.D., really pouring into this uh, new church. Then he leaves. He's in Rome when he writes the book of Ephesians, sometime around 61 and 62. And when Paul is in Ephesus the second time, he appoints Timothy to be the pastor uh, of, uh, of that church. And then Paul writes to Timothy a year or so after he writes to the church at Ephesus. And what's interesting to me as I've looked at Ephesians and we've talked about it is that then we see the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. He's, he writes that book sometime between 80 and 90 A.D., we believe. And it says in chapter 2 that the Ephesian church had abandoned the love you had at first. So in that space of 40-some-odd years, the pressure, the conflict, the growth in that church had they had done well in many ways. Uh, uh, John tells them, yeah, you've, you've stood against the many of the heresies, but yet you've lost that first love, which is love of Christ and the love for one another. When I visited Ephesus a few years ago, in the sidewalk, I was, I was very amazed at a couple of things. First, when you, walk into, when you walk to Ephesus, today it's just nothing but dirt. And then you walk down a, uh, a ramp about 60 feet below the surface, and that's where the city is because it's been all silted in. There are two-story homes. Uh, they had the first central air conditioning. They had water running underneath the foundations of their houses, but they had no way to make the air move to the second floor. And they also had central heat. They would light fires in the winter underneath the deck of the first floor of that house, and it would cause heat to rise. They also had a two-story library, which is super cool. You can look at at least the fascia of it online. And then you would notice as you walked on the, uh, not the sidewalk, but we would call it a sidewalk today, that there were different signs carved into the block. There was a, the early, one of the earliest Christian signs was a circle with three lines crossed through it. The one that immediately came after that was the one of the fish, which we're very aware of. And you would see that engraved in the stone. And then you would also see ones that, that was a design for the god, uh, goddess Artemis, there were other Jewish signs carved there, and there were also signs for brothels. So as you walk through, if you were looking to get hooked up, you would turn right here and whatever. And uh, it was very, very interesting to see. And uh, so that city where this church was birthed was a uh, metropolitan, I would say, hopping joint for, the, for that time of the year. So the pre- stresses and the pressure that they feel was very, very real. Our passage today focuses on purity, on a change in lifestyle that occurs as a result of believing in Jesus. It divides into two sections. Uh, First, Paul talks about the futility of life outside of Christ and that we are to no longer walk as Gentiles do. And then in section two, Paul focuses on the need for the church to put off the old man, to literally get undressed, to put aside, to be renewed in their minds, and then to put on the new man to live in our new identity, which is in Jesus. Um, I want to tell you a little story about my family. Um, 
Uh, I have three daughters. Uh, Kristen just moved here. Chelsea's the middle, goes to Redemption Arcadia. And Amanda is in South Africa with her fiancé looking at elephants or something. And uh, in fact, they are at Victoria Falls today. I know that. So, um, but as they were growing up, and for those of you who've raised daughters, if you've raised boys, I don't think this is the case. When you get three girls in the same room who are like young teens and up, it's after dinner. They've all had a tough day. Dad has had a tough day. And guess what they want to do? They want to share their emotions. Let's talk about my life. Woo! Oh, man, it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> in fact, it's quite unbelievable. So uh, in the midst of that, those conversations, my middle daughter, Chelsea, named me the Grizz. So the Grizz would come out after a long day at work, after listening to the emotions of three girls at one time, <laughs> and then their emotions against each other. Of course, they want to share their thoughts and feelings and all that stuff, uh, and then bang, out would come the Grizz, almost like, who's that guy with the long, that doesn't matter, the Wolverine, that's him, anyway, so, um, and my answers would get sharper and sharper, they'd get less empathetic, more pointed and directive, and I'd hear, the Grizz is out, don't go near, <laughs> leave him alone. Um, as I, I share that story, because as we move into this portion of Ephesians, I can't say with certainty, but I do believe that I think Paul is having an attack of the grids in this portion of Scripture, and I'll show you in a minute. One of my concerns for us as we grow in our faith, and those who've been in the Word for a while, is uh, this concept called Flat Bible. It's not talked about much, but you can look it up in Google. And the concept of Flat Bible is that we read the Bible so much that we really, it loses its impact. You read in the same translation, you read this, and yeah, 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 whatever, okay, got it, check that's, you know, that's done. I can tell you I'm old enough, as I'm reminded on the elder board often, that uh, when I went to seminary, uh, the only two translations we had was King James and New American Standard. I went to seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the NIV came out between the years of 81 and 84. And I'm going to tell you, it was refreshing to get, you know, first the New Testament, then you got the Old Testament, then you got to put together. It was wonderful to read that translation because of just the change in language and how fresh the Bible seemed then compared to the King James. And I'm not picking on it, but it was just much, much different. That's why translations today, like the NIV, the New Living, NLT, New Living uh, Translation, and the message, I know it's not a translation, it's a paraphrase, have been so popular because we get to experience, I think, more passion and emotion of the writer. And I think that if we're not careful, it's almost like, you ever drink a flat Coke? You know, it's, you pour it and you go, uh-oh, there's nothing coming on the top. And you go, this is terrible because the fizz is gone. And I think sometimes we get reading the Bible so much and so often we lose that, oh, this is, look at, look at Paul, see what he's doing. But I think that in this case, as we look at Ephesians uh, 4, 17, uh, we can get some of that. So 4, 17 and 19, Paul says this, Now I say this and testify in the Lord. So I think you can put a little emotion, a little uh, maybe vime. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must not, no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of, of impurity. I think Paul's frustration 
passion, strong desire for the church that he had ministered to for two and a half to three years and had asked his protege, Timothy, to remain as the pastor can be seen because he, say, he, say, he, he says, I, I testify to this. I'm sorry, now I say this and then testify to it that you no longer walk as they once did. His comments remind us of how Paul began this chapter in verse 1. He said, I urge you, and I think there's urgency there, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now Paul appeals to his own authority as an apostle. I, Paul, an apostle, and to the Lord himself. Paul, now I say this. Do you, do you hear me? You who have lived and ate and taught and been with Paul, prayed for you, I say this to you, someone who has invested years of his life into this church, and I testify in the Lord. It's almost like you've been in some of those rooms. Let's give a testimony. Give your hand up there. And Paul's going, I'm going to testify in the Lord that the Lord would expect you and want the same thing, not to walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. A sweeping statement, I believe this is, to the entire church. He's not pointing out Gentiles specifically. They are not to walk, to live their lives like they did before they believed. In the futility of their minds is what Paul writes in one of the translations, things I was looking at. It's translated like this. Good-for-nothing notions which result in irresponsible behavior. And I think the definition of insanity applies here, too, because you know what that is. It's doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result. Come on, people. I, Paul, and the Lord testify. As you explore this list, you might be saying, as you mentally check off the things that Paul names, um, futility in your mind, you might go, "Eh, I'm not too futile. (laughs) I'm pretty organized. Uh, darkening my understanding, I think it's, I'm doing well there, uh, alienated from, from the life of God because of ignorance that's in them, and I don't think that counts for me due to the hardness of their heart, no, I'm trying to keep my heart soft, they've become callous, I don't think so, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every kind of impurity. I don't think it's the names or those things that Paul talks about that counts, he's telling us We all need to be aware of the sin that so easily entangles us. And we need to be very careful that we do not slip into those old lifestyles, into those those old ways ways of life. The point is that that Paul's making is that you must not act like your life has not changed, has not been changed by Jesus. Our conversion brings change to our life. No change, there's no assurance that we are believers. We should see and expect spiritual fruit in ourselves and our brothers and sisters' uh, lives. Christians should be different than non-Christians. Unless we compromise, the need for purity that Paul expressed is also supported in other books, and this is one of them. This is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, as he writes to a dispersed group of Christians, primarily Jews, he says this in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct 
among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Paul in his first section is encouraging the church. I would say maybe exhorting, if there's a difference in those words, I think so. I think he's really leaning hard into him that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Stop what you're doing. Section 2, Paul talks about putting off and putting on. He says this, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. But this is not the way you learn Christ. Here comes the grizz, I would say, because you'll notice that probably most of your translations has an exclamation point there. Paul is, I believe, frustrated or impatient, but at a minimum, he's very purposeful in his language. You are no longer to live as the old man because you are a new man. We are to become the men and women we have been made in Jesus. And he says, I think I have this tendency of me sometimes to read Paul when when he says in verse um, 21, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught as the truth is in Jesus. I think, at least when I first read that, uh, Paul, you'd be a little sarcastic (laughs) going, assuming you heard. I spent two and a half years with you, three years with you, and assuming you've heard. Now, I don't think it's intended that way at all, but I think Paul is making the point. You have heard me speak. You have heard me teach. Please, listen to what I say. We don't believe in what's called perfectionism, that we can one day live a life where the old man no longer bothers us, because we will all struggle with our old man until we appear before Jesus. There is none of us in this church or in this auditorium this morning who does not struggle. It is common to all men to fight that old man, new man battle. In verse 21, he says, you have heard about him. Now, I, was, I would ask you, and you don't have to do this, but I would take a pencil, and I want you to cross out or put a parenthesis around a word in verse 21, and the word is about. The scripture says this, Paul says this, assuming that you have heard about him, that about should not be there. Uh, in the Greek, there's no preposition in that, in that statement. So I would say put a, put a parenthesis, put a line through it, because it should read, you have heard him and were taught him. I want to stop and look at that for a minute. What does it mean to learn Christ? That's a question I have. And I'll be, uh, this is not being sarcastic, but just being, is it a bit of devotions we have? Maybe a few podcasts. We listen to some music. We hang with your community as your schedule allows. Is, Is that what it means to learn Christ? I would say, no, it does not. I think Paul, as we'll unpack this a little bit, is pointing to the lifetime commitment it takes to learn about Jesus. To learn about Jesus, we've got to be in a relationship with Jesus. 
And this learning occurs in the community of the body of Christ. The idea, again, is long-term. In fact, many of these Ephesians, when we go, if we look back at that chart of these Ephesian believers, Paul had led to Christ 10 to 12 years before this time, before Paul writes. So as Paul writes this, he's writing to people who should be expected to be mature, who should have grown well in their faith and have been well on the way of learning about Jesus. Shirley and I were married uh, 40 years in May. And when I first met her, thank you very much. It's been a blessing, especially for her. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) she's not here so I could say that. Second service, I will not say that. But anyway. (laughs) Um, And I'll tell you, when I first met her, and you don't want to hear these old stories, but anyway, when I first met her and saw her, uh, I was a freshman in college, 23 years old. She was a senior, 23 years old. It took me about a month to figure out that we're the same age. Freshman and senior doesn't matter when you're in college, really. It doesn't high school. But when I first saw her and first met her, I really wanted to get to know her. And you could all remember those things well. And, and I did my best to do that. I promise you, man. Any way I could get to spend time with her, I was there. But I will tell you this. It has been 40 years of learning her that has brought me to the realization that I cannot be defined or known without her in my life. I can't be anymore. Yeah, your first six months, you know, as you're dating, 40 years, you cannot. I mean, I watch my grandparents. I've told stories of the elders. My uh, grandfather died when he was 99, 11 months, and 10 days. Willard Scott had his picture going on, Good Morning America, or whatever. He didn't marry my nana until he was 50. Um, and I watched them in their relationship. She would show up and do things for him, and he would never say a word. And I'm like, how do you know that? I just know. Because <laughs> I've learned my husband. I've learned my wife. So again, for for myself at least, I know that I cannot be defined without Shirley in my life. And I I shared with you before when I preached uh, a while ago, my hope and desire is to finish the Christian life well. And as I thought about that statement about Shirley and I, I, I I wrote this down. My hope is that my life will not be able to be defined or known without Jesus as I reach the final days. That's my hope, man, that people will say, yeah, yes, we see Jesus in him. Not perfect by any means, but that's a goal. In Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul describes the change that had occurred to him in his life when he believed. This comes from the Phillips translation. So it's, as I read it to you, it's, going to be a little different, but it's worth going back to look at. It's translated this way, Philippians 3.10, quote, how changed are my ambitions. Now I long to know Christ and the power shown by his resurrection. Now I long to share his sufferings, even to die as he died, so that I may perhaps attain, as he did, the resurrection from the dead. To learn Christ, then, is to embrace him and all that, 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 that makes him Jesus. What's interesting to me is I've spent a long time studying different guys. Like, you spend time doing a biographical study on, on David. You might do Moses. You might have done Paul. I'm a big fan of Peter. Love Peter because he reminds me of myself. And um, 
But, you know, I've never, it occurred to me recently that I never sat and have done a biographical study on Jesus. Just study Jesus. We read about him in the Gospels. We think we know lots about him. And I know we do, but I think spending that time to dig deeper into the life of Jesus and understand him would be extremely valuable to all of us. I'm not sure how many of you have seen the movie Amazing Grace, but as a guy who teaches a lot, I would recommend that you buy that movie and show it to your kids as they get older or even watch it now. Amazing Grace is a story about William Wilberforce, who was, um, lived about the 1700s. He was in Parliament in England, and the story is about Wilberforce's uh, what, what's the right word? Wilberforce's part in abolishing the slave trade in England, which then caused Ripple's effect to the states and other, other places. The other character of substance in that movie is his pastor named John Newton, who wrote that famous song, Amazing Grace. It's interesting, as you look at Newton's life, and this is just a really short clip, Newton's uh, mother died when he was seven. She was a believer. Uh, he talks about remembering his mom telling Bible stories and reading scripture. Soon after that, he turned to the sea as a cabin boy and other things, and eventually he rose to the rank of a captain and became the captain of a slaver, of a slave ship, for many years. Through a series of circumstances, the Holy Spirit worked in his life and brought back to mind his mother's teaching as a young boy. He turned to Christ and became a pastor, or what's known as a vicar, of a church in England and wrote many, many hymns uh, after that until eventually he became blind. And it's interesting, in the movie, um, if you've seen some old uh, seafaring movies, you see captains with these big hats and all the gold epaulets and the gold buttons. But when you meet John Newton uh, in the church where he's serving as vicar, Wilberforce goes to see him. He's in bare feet with rags, with a, like a, just a tunic that goes down to his knees, and he's swabbing the floor. He's just, that's what he does. And his humility, his humbleness is a phenomenal thing to see. And he talks about the memories of all those slaves he carried on his ship and, has, and, and, and how they haunted him. But I can only imagine what Newton's fellow captains, friends, and merchants would say about him when they saw him. You're, you're Captain Newton. No, I'm Pastor Newton, and you dress, uh, yeah, you dress worse than anything we've ever seen with this tunic over you, and you, and you swab the floor in bare, in bare feet. The change in Newton's life was dramatic and was evident to, to, to all those who knew him. So Paul again says, surely you heard him, Jesus. And the Ephesians were probably asking themselves, uh, did I miss something? Did Jesus show up for a couple of years when you were here, Paul? Did I not get a chance to see him? And Paul, you taught us, so are you saying, as we heard you, we heard him through you? Ah, I'd be interested to Paul's response. I think he might say yes to that. What they experience, and I think we experience, is what I call, this is a new term, I think. I tried to look it up, I didn't see it anywhere. Called the, called the dynamic or divine dialogue that takes place in a monologue. Now, I know that sounds really weird, so let me help you with that, okay? So here we go. When you come to church, our whole service is prepared 
uh, is designed to prepare us to receive the word, the proclamation. And what happens is we sit and listen to a monologue like me or Sean or John or Vince or others who will be up here preaching. But it's more than just a one-way monologue. I want to remind you, I've got another slide on the Holy Spirit that should, should show up here in a moment. These are some things that Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit. He says this, John 14, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. He goes on in 16, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they don't believe in me. When the Spirit speaks of truth comes, he will guide you, another word that's very important, into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. Look down at verse 15, the last two lines there. Jesus says, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will make will take what is mine and declare it to you. So some of the things that the Holy Spirit does for us, he teaches us, he brings to remembrance all that I have said, Uh, he will guide us, he won't speak on his own authority, and he will take from what is Jesus and make it, and and take what is mine and declare it to us. So I think when you and I sit here and listen to the monologue, our monologue, the preaching is a one-way delivery. Um, We need to be aware that we are really involved in what I call this divine or dynamic dialogue with the Holy Spirit as we hear the word, as we hear him and are taught in him the Holy Spirit as at work. Paul is saying that when the truth of God is spoken, we are hearing it as if Jesus spoke it personally. Whether you're conscious, conscious of it or not, it's happening now, although some of you might have tuned out. I can't tell because I can't see very well. Anyway, only kidding. Um, but, uh, but you're listening, perhaps taking some notes. And during the, during the day today and the rest of the week, the Holy Spirit will be working on your heart and mind, bringing back our liturgy, the songs, the reading of the word, and the proclamation of the word. Taking what is mine, as Jesus said And declaring it to us, as Jesus said, reminding us all that Jesus has said. So when the word of God is taught, the voice of Jesus is heard because the truth is in Jesus, as Paul says in this passage. So then, what were the Ephesians believers taught? They were taught to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through through deceitful desires. This is not a new saying to them. What Paul reminds them is what they have heard before. When you repented, Paul was saying you were, you were regenerated and a radical transformation occurred. Why would you consider, why would we consider putting on our old clothes again? Why? Because it's safe, let's be honest, because we've all done it. Uh, but that's why. Secondly, Paul says to be, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. A parallel passage in Colossians 3, 5, and verse 9 and 10 is this. Paul says, put to death, uh, therefore, what is earthly in, your, in you, 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The, the renewing process, the learning process, is a lifetime one. As we learn Jesus, we learn more about him and his love. As our minds are renewed, we put off and put on and grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. And the third thing Paul teaches them is to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on, again, simply means to get dressed in the new self that was created in you when you believed. Do you, do you remember Jesus' conversation that occurred at night with a Pharisee named Nicodemus? Jesus says, do not marvel, Nicodemus, that I say you must be born again. We know that when we believed, all things became new. The old passed away. We who were dead are now alive. We are now a new creation, created, as Paul says, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Putting off and putting on the new is not easy. And there will be days when you don't want to. I can promise you that. In fact, there might be several times in a day or days that you'd like to throw off the new man and have at it with the old man. <laughs> Going after, I got some things to say to you. Is that what Christ would want you to do? No. So can I just put off the new man for a few minutes and just go, and then I'll come back in? Not, not a good thing uh, to, to do all, uh, at all. But that's not the way we came to know Christ, Paul says. We must walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Jesus has changed us. We should expect an endeavor to produce good fruit in keeping with our repentance. Paul is asking why would we want to put on our old clothes? Why would you want to do that? You put off, you put on, and we, have to, and we need to have our minds remo- uh, renewed through the scriptures and through the teaching of the word. We have been made new, which has made us different. And I want to share with you... Uh, of, uh, just a short story out of Pilgrim's Progress. Um, if you have not read that book, uh, I have heard about it for years, but didn't buy it till about six months ago. I can't tell you why, but I would recommend it to you now. This story is the, this portion of the story is when Christian and faithful emerge from the wilderness, heading to a town it's named that is Vanity. And Bunyan says this. There was a fair in the town of Vanity, and at this fair, one could always see jugglers, cheats, games, plays, fools, mimics, tricksters, and scoundrels of every kind. Here, one could also see, without charge, thefts, murders, adulteries, liars, and things of scarlet. And Christian and faithful, as they move through the fair, uh, Bunyan says this, uh, I will say this, they had to go through the fair to, to get to the celestial city, so they had no choice. They had to go through this fair. Uh, it says this fair, therefore, was an ancient thing of long standing and a very large fair, and these pilgrims, as I said, had to pass through it. But 
when they entered the fair, all the people got excited, and the town was soon in an uproar around them. There were several reasons for this. Let me give you two. First, the pilgrims' clothing was different from any worn by those who were trading at the fair. Therefore, the people stared at them rudely. Some said they were fools. Some said they were madmen. Some said they were outlandish. Why not change clothes before you get to the fair is a question that came to my mind. And another reason the town was so amazed at them was this. The pilgrims were not interested in any of the wares sold at the fair. They didn't even want to look at them. And if they called upon them, talking to Christian and faithful, to buy them, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, turn away mine eyes from, the be- from beholding vanity and look upward, signifying that their business was in heaven. And then one man sees them in their carriage and he runs up to them and he shakes the carriage And he says this, mockingly, what would you buy if you don't want any of these things? They looked at him gravely and answered, we buy the truth. So I think it's an interesting example of what it means to put off the old, to put on the new. They were definitely distinct in that fair and their their presence, their attitude, uh, the way they talked and the the way they interacted definitely made an impact. As Josh McDowell says in a book he wrote years ago, the evidence demands a verdict. It does. The evidence in your life demands a verdict by yourself, by those who know you well, to go, are you walking with Christ or are you not? Question that I have for all of us is, what do you have to put off? Those who know you well and don't know Jesus, are they surprised in the way, uh, in any way in the change of your life? If there's issues in, that, in those areas, the community here at Redemption Peoria is here to help. We are also naive to think that the enemy, identified as Beelzebub in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, does not hate for us to put off the old and put on the new. He will stop at nothing to hinder you and I from doing that. And we've got to remember that our fight is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We can't forget our first love as a church and as a people as the uh, church of Ephesus is uh, chastised for in Revelation uh, chapter 2. As a church, we need to guard ourselves. And I would ask you, if you ever hear anything that causes you concern about this church, do not hesitate to come and let the elders, Sean, any of the leaders know so that we can address your concerns and, and, and fears. I don't know all of you here, and it amazes me more and more every week as I stand outside, and I've learned now when I meet people to go, how long have you been coming here? I don't go, are you new? Because I always get smoked when I say that one. In fact, I met somebody a while ago who said, I've been coming here two years, and I'm like, I could not, do not remember them. That's how bad it is. But, so, I don't know all of you here, and I don't know where you all stand with this. But I do know that many people are tied up outside of Christ by failing to understand the breadth, the wonder, and the simplicity of Christ's invitation. He says this, come to me and find rest. It's an invitation for those of you who have not believed 
to come to him and find rest. Josh and the team are going to come back up here in a moment and continue to lead us. As we move into our time of response, uh, this time gives us uh, a few minutes to reflect uh, on the Word, on Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. And I want to invite you deliberately to enter into the divine dialogue and seek the Lord's direction and application about living as Gentiles do. What areas in your life, probably not in that list, or maybe they might be, do you need to look at with a hard eye? And then what things in your life do you need to put off? How do you need to continue to be renewed in your mind and to put on what God is asking us to do so that we might be a distinct people, loving and kind, of course, willing to reach across borders and in different lives and to introduce people to the man who says, come to me and you'll find rest. Let me pray for us and we'll continue. Father, thank you um, for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for Paul who cared deeply for this church that he established And Father, I'm sure grieved for the things that he was hearing about their struggles. And Father, desired desperately for them to come and to turn from the old man and to put on the new man. Father, as a church, as we examine our own lives individually, help us to do that well as a body so that we would honor you, Lord, in all that we do and say. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.